Everyone enjoying our walk through Matthew? We haven't gotten that far yet. Only chapter five. So, um, um, so much to learn, so much to study in this book. Uh, I've been enjoying it. Uh, Matthew, you know, it's nice to break it up. You know, it's nice not to break it up when we study the Word of God. Moving through an entire book of the Bible, I find it helpful because then you kind of it kind of keeps your focus. Um, you know, as we stated before, each gospel is an is an incredible journey and it's an incredible picture of the work of Christ, all that he is, all that he's accomplished, and each writer, you know, there's a reason there's four, you know, that has a perspective, each one has a perspective that's a little different, and as we read each gospel account, we have the privilege of having a wide-angle view, you know, now that we've, you know, then there was no wide-angle view, they didn't have a clue, you know, but we get to see the entirety of scripture together uh, and see what it's done, what he's done for us. You know, we get an understanding of the riches of God's Word because we're blessed to see the grand story from the beginning until now. You know, how God knew exactly how things were going to play out. You know, He knew His creation would fall flat on its face, and so a a great rescue plan was put into place. And that's good news. So, we worked through the first few chapters of Matthew. We discussed Matthew is, you know, written from a Jewish perspective how he includes the lineage of Jesus, shows how the prophecies were fulfilled through Christ, all the words that were spoken of him in the Old Testament. <clears throat> you know, we see the Spirit fall upon him, voice from heaven declared, this is my beloved Son. Uh, he restores the sonship that Israel was called to walk in, but kept running away from and falling flat on their face. Uh, they constantly blew it. Jesus restores that sonship, and he pleases the Father. That was supposed to be Israel's job. <laughs> Israel never walked in sonship that pleased God because they continually walked away from him uh, and so often would miss the great calling. So Jesus comes to restore it, restore humankind to that sonship. He's the beloved son who doesn't walk away. Um, He was driven into the wilderness just like Israel went out into the wilderness and was tempted as the new Adam, the perfect Adam, the perfect son. He did not give into temptation and so doing he restored what had been lost in the fall with Adam and Eve. So he restored that sonship that we say that Israel kept walking away from. So after Jesus is tempted <clears throat> and he calls some of the disciples to follow him, he goes up and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we've been finding ourselves in the last week or two. In this moment, he becomes basically a second Moses, we talked about, Decla- going up on the mountain, declaring the word of the Lord to the people. You know, the first thing out of his mouth is, blessed are the poor, you know, those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Uh, those who hunger, blessed are the merciful, pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, he says to all of you, rejoice and be glad. I have come for you. You know, the religious leaders thought they had it all together. And they started to question him, you know, started to hate him. And this guy seemed more interested in spending, times with, spending time with sinners and tax collectors than uh, righteous people or who they considered righteous. You know, they completely missed what was happening. You know, in that section of Scripture, we see the humble and downcast are given hope. See that those who hunger after the Lord will be filled. You know, so Christ restores all things, heals all things through his perfect, sinless life. You know, a life that he was willing to sacrifice for mankind to restore us. You know, to bring back, bring us back into that sonship to be his children. Lots of information. Four or five chapters. Right, um, Dennis spent an hour last Sunday 
talking about uh, verses 13 and 16 in chapter 5. And there was so much meat to those verses, you know, calling us to be salt and light that Dennis never got past verse 13. He's concentrated on salt. You know, maybe he should be up here finishing, but too bad, it's my turn. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> uh, just like Dennis, we may not get through it all, but we're going to do our best. So now we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> so let's read together, and we're going to start in verse 17, uh, which was our memory verse this week. And we'll read right on through to verse 20. So here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, that's heavy. <laughs> Just that last line. Anyway, so let's pray before we get going. Lord God, we just pray that you would be with us, Lord. We just thank you for your word and its truth that it shows us, God. Uh, God, I just pray that whatever comes out of my mouth brings you glory, God. That you would put a guard against my lips that nothing would come out of it except your truth. And it would declare your gospel and your love for us, God. God, we just pray that you would help us to carry it when we leave this place. Uh, and that we would fulfill that great calling that you've put on us to uh, go into the world and make disciples of all men. We just thank and we praise you uh, for all that you've done for us, God, and we didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, it's a hefty section of Scripture. Um, Jesus proclaims here in verse 17 what many people are wondering who are watching him. You know, there's a vast crowd following Jesus. And people are enamored by him. You know, he captures their attention. You know, they have never seen or heard anyone like him. You know, they have never, or you have to have, um, you know, people are clamoring, you know, to listen to his words. And in this background, you have to, you have the, and in the background, you've got all these religious leaders who are watching, right? Starting to get a little nervous. Uh, people start questioning. You know, who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Because he seems to be one who speaks with authority. You know, is he a teacher or is there something sinister afoot? Um, is he a deceiver? You know, is he leading the people astray? Thousands loved him. Many, especially the Pharisees and the religious leaders, were not so sure, you know, in this moment, if he should be trusted or could be trusted. So we've got to remember that um, it was the job of the rabbis, the priests, the religious leaders to protect people from deception. You know, they were the ones uh, who were to teach the Torah, the law, to the people. You know, fulfill that Old Testament command of the priests to be intermediaries between uh, the people and the Lord. You know, protecting them from those who would distort the word of the Lord and blaspheme who God is. Uh, it was the priest's jobs to offer up sacrifices to God, to atone for the sins of the people, you know, making a way for them. The religious leaders had a big job. You know, Moses told them in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 13, to watch out, be careful. There will be people who come 
with signs and wonders and try to deceive you. you know, well, heck, let's look at it. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commands and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the, w leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So it's a big deal that they had, you know, the job that they had to care, to protect God's word. You know, right before chapter, in chapter 12, it ends with this in Deuteronomy. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> uh, the New Testament ends with this. In Revelation twenty-two nineteen, I warn anyone who hears these words, if anyone takes away from these words, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. End of story. That's how it ends. So the people, the rabbis, they all want to know who does Jesus say, uh, G what does Jesus say about the law and the prophets? You know, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was the law. And then you had the rest of history and the prophets that were recorded. The entirety of the word of God they had been given at, the, at that time was called, they called it, it's kind of like its nickname, the law and the prophets. Uh, so when they said the law and the prophets, they were talking about the whole Old Testament. It wasn't the Old Testament to them, right? It was the Testament. Um, <clears throat> it was everything they had. Um, there wasn't anything else. You know, it, it was how they understood God. It wasn't to be scoffed at. It was everything to them, and it was to be cherished and protected. You know, Moses warns them not to follow false teachers and prophets. Didn't do a very good job all the time. <laughs> be careful. Someone may come along with signs and wonders, and if they lead you away from the Lord, they're deserving of death. So it's no joke. So they want to know, what is this? What is Jesus doing? You know, what does this man say about the law and the prophets? Uh, the word of the Lord is everything. You know, it's a continued warning for us as believers. It's why, you know, it's why we study the word. It's why we read the word. If you don't know the word, guess what? You'll be deceived. Uh, we memorize the words that we are not led away from the truth. It's got to be protected. You know, Martin Luther said this about the word of the Lord. He said this, we must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part over the power of God and endures everlastingly. The word of God is everything. You know, I mean, look at uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, 
So what does Jesus say about the word? He makes this statement about the word of the Lord, about the law and the prophets. He knows people are wondering, you know, is Jesus trustworthy? Has he come to lead us astray or not? You know, he tells them all, I have come, you know, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to do what? Fulfill it. You know, I love the word, is what he's telling him. I fulfill the law completely, and I am the one that, entire, that the entirety of Scripture points to. You know, how many, I know we've been, a few people have mentioned this, how many have been watching the Chosen series? All right, pretty good. Um, I haven't watched it all, and I know that, you know, season three's out. Um, there's a controversy last. See all these people fighting about the Chosen, you know, uh, in the season three. You know, the little blurb that they had, the, you know, the trailer for it and all this. <clears throat> in season three, episode three is what they're fighting about. The scene takes place in his hometown. Uh, he reads uh, from Isaiah 61. You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, set free the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? Then he closes the scroll in this dramatic scene and says, today's that day. Now, when they did this, the thing, it's in his hometown. They're like, they all know who this guy is, right? Watched him grow up. Uh, they're excited at first when he says this. Um, if you haven't seen the scene, I've tried to describe it as best I can. But uh, they think he's speaking about them because they're the Jews. They're the chosen people. All these blessings are for them. Right? Uh, these gifts and blessings belong to them. You know, and then Jesus starts to push back. You know, because they're like, yes, amen, that's, that's for us. And he's like, you don't have a clue. You know, uh, he starts to push back and he says, salvation not, cannot just be had because of your, of your race. That's not it. You know, and then he reminds them. I think they really, I thought they did a great job in the scene. But he reminds them about the, a few Gentiles in the Old Testament who followed God and found healing and restoration. You know, they were told these accounts that he mentions in this scene. He says, Elijah, you know, had Naaman dip in the river. He wasn't a Jew, right? And then you had, uh, what was the other one? Oh, you had um, the cakes. So you had the widow in Zarephath with the cakes and the flour, and she's, is saved from starvation, right? Because she follows uh, what Elijah tells her to do. He says, they found it. You've missed it. I'm like, and I just thought it was really key how they put it together. Anyway, he comes to bring salvation. He says to them, he comes to bring salvation and not vengeance like they were expecting. Now they're starting to get a little angry, you know, and upset. You know, what are you saying? And the rabbi of the town starts to quote, you know, looks at Jesus and pulls him to the side and starts to quote. And he's like, what is it that you're trying to say? It sounds like you're saying something that you shouldn't say. And he says, and then he starts to quote Deuteronomy 13. You know, um, it's funny because when I was putting the sermon together, I wrote down Deuteronomy 13. And then I I'm like, I got to watch this clip because I remember they were fighting about it. And I'm like, he quotes Deuteronomy 13. Why it was such a big deal when Jesus started talking the way he was talking? Um, you know, so it says, before I even, you know, anyway, so as soon as the rabbi started to quote Deuteronomy 13, my heart jumped a little bit, um, and he says, any false prophet must be put to death. 
is what he's telling Jesus in the scene. You know, recant what you're saying, or I'll be forced to follow the law. And Jesus looks him square in the face and says, I am the law. And then all the internet blows up. Because they're all like, Jesus never said that. You know, and, you know, that was all this fuss. They're fighting. It's like, he's claiming the Book of Mormon. And then the guys that, you know, that wrote the book's like, what are you talking about? It's not a quote from the Book of Mormon. And all these things are starting back and forth, you know, all these claims and fighting. And it's like, because we love a conflict, seems like today. Anyway, I haven't started season three. I haven't even watched the whole episode. I've only seen this clip. So I can't give you much information. Maybe there's, it's, it's a little out of whack. I don't know. I know it. I'm sure they don't quote scripture correctly every moment. It's, it's, it's Hollywood people. They don't, they're not always accurate. You know, that's why you have to know your word. Um, anyway, I didn't really have a problem with it because of, you know, well, let's think about it. In Matthew, Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law. And in, in the Gospel of John, you know, chapter one, verse one through five, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, if Christ is the Word of God in the flesh, then why was the big deal when he said, I am the law? Right, you know, uh, they took a little creative license. So if Jesus is the Word of God, then He is the law. You know, anyway, that's just my take on it. I mean, you can decide for yourselves. I haven't done a deep dive, but it seems like these days are always looking for a fight. Anyway, uh, John one. Let's go to fourteen. Let's read fourteen through seventeen. Uh, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received uh, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, if Christ is the word of God made flesh, then of course he didn't come to abolish it. He fulfills it completely. If he's the word of God, his, he's, you know, he is the word, and his word is him, is him, himself. I don't know how you say that properly, but it's, it is. Yesterday, today, forever, you know, he remains the same. So if you've been reading in Matthew, uh, you can see a pattern of how Matthew was laying out this gospel. You know, right from the beginning, he's laying out who Jesus is, um, that he's the Christ, the Messiah, who has come in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And he reminds the, le the readers that he fulfills Scripture. You know, in chapter 1, he goes back to Isaiah 7.14, a virgin will bear his son, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Chapter 2, he refers to Micah 5, that Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, then, and, uh, then he fulfills Hosea 11. You know, I will call my son out of Egypt, then Jeremiah 31, when Herod is killing all the male children, Rachel whip, weeping for her children because they were gone. Um, Isaiah 40, speaking of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You know, Matthew is laying out how Jesus is fulfilling it, you know, fulfilling it all. You know, all that came before, all the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. 
You know, it's incredible because, you know, we have prophecies that go back hundreds of years being fulfilled. You know, we even have prophecies that go back thousands of years um, being fulfilled, coming to pass. The slavery of Israel and Egypt prophesied about, and it happened, right? All the messianic prophets that we just talked about um, fulfilled in Christ, you know, Jesus tells them that he has he come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I'm not, and I'm telling you, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all has been fulfilled. Now, in other versions, it says not one jot or tittle, King James. Or the, it's, you know, so a jot and a tittle, smallest parts of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, a jot is like this little apostrophe-looking thing. It's called the yod. I say it right. It's the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's the smallest one. It's this little tiny thing, you know, um, of the Hebrew alphabet. It's even, and what's even smaller is the jot. You know, uh, I don't know, I think I read that there's some arguments about this, but I think it's like, it's like the, when you put a line over an E for pronunciation, that's what they think it's kind of like. And so it's, all, it's like a tail on a letter. It's even smaller. Um, so, <clears throat> so, you know, what he's trying to say is, don't think that I have come to put away the law. You know, every part of the law, down to the smallest letter, the smallest little line, is eternal. It's ordained, it's the ordained word of God. You know, it's forever. There's no mistakes. You know, it was intentional, it was purposeful in its design, and it remains forever. God protects and preserves his word. You know, later in Matthew, we will hear Jesus say in chapter 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will will never pass away. You know, in Isaiah, it states, uh, Isaiah 48 um, let's see, it says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Romans 15.4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. You know, Jesus is saying that every part of his word is true. Every single part will be accomplished. You know, every prophecy will come true, every promise fulfilled, every warning and every threat that is made about, who, about those who ignore his words and his commandments, they'll come to pass. You know, throughout his earthly life, Jesus lived and breathed scripture. You know, he was the word made flesh, and it just poured out of him. Um, you know, when, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, what came out of his mouth? Scripture. Um, when he, when he, and they think about when he was hanging on the cross, breathing his last breaths, what came out of his mouth? Scripture. You know, you know the measure of a man and what he's made of when you, when you see them in a battle uh, and when they're in the thick of torment and anguish, the only thing that left, left in those moments is who you really are. And he was the word. You know, your instincts kick in and your heart and the heart of man is laid bare before everyone is to see, you know, his greatest moments of anguish, struggle, and pain, what came out of him was the word of God. When he is tempted, he quoted from Deuteronomy over and over again. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes in the mouth of the Lord. Uh, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Uh, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone will you serve. You know, when he flips over the tables in the temple, he's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. You know, um, my house is meant to be a house of prayer. That's what he says, not a den of thieves. It's not in Isaiah. You know, he weeps over Jerusalem, speaks Psalm 118. You know, I want to save you. But you refuse, and you will be desolate, and you will not see me again until what? Blessed to you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's Psalm 118. You know, then on the cross, he cries out what? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he was the living, breathing word of God. In every moment, he was speaking scripture and opening the eyes to the greater permit, purpose and meaning to be found. So he didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to abolish any of it. He came to fulfill it. And I think we get confused <clears throat> when he says, I didn't come to abolish but fulfill the law of the prophets. Um, you know, what is the meaning? This is what I think sometimes we get confused about. You know, what is the meaning of abolish? It means formally put to an end. He says, I have, he says, I, have I haven't ended it. I fulfilled it. You know, so what does fulfill mean? So to fulfill means to achieve, to realize or bring to reality, to gain satisfaction or fully develop. But one meaning, if you're looking in the dictionary, it says to complete. So what happens is they look at the abolish part where it says to complete or fulfill, and then they tie it with fulfill. Okay, so that's the mistake, you know, getting, our de getting the definition from abolish, kind of, um, instead of what it really means. So the word abolish in this statement. So abolish means to end something. Fulfill means to complete something. So they're like, well, it must be I'm not under the law anymore. Or the law doesn't mean anything. You know, it's complete. It's over. <laughs> you know, that's not what it means. Okay, all those other things are, are, are what it means. Gain satisfaction from. That means fulfill. You know, bring it to reality. Fully develop it. That's fulfill. You know, when I was um, studying this, I watched this cool clip of this messianic rabbi, and he kind of was explaining the difference between abolish and fulfill. And I thought it was a perfect description for how we can put the wrong meaning to fulfill if we think it means complete, you know, and like it's ended. Um, and that the, lo the laws no longer are important. So he says, uh, he said he was sitting at a table, with a pastor friend, having dinner. They were talking about this, I guess. Um, and his, he had just emptied his water glass, and it was half full. So he asked the waiter, please fill the glass. So fill it all the way to the top, he tells the waiter. So the waiter fills his glass to the top, <clears throat> and then he says this to the waiter after he fills it to the top. Okay, take it away. It's no longer of any value to me <laughs> because it's complete and it's now full. Now, does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. A full glass has enormous value. Jesus fulfills the law. You know, he fills that glass. So we can enjoy it and live, fulfill, you know, fulfill ourselves. Not because we filled the glass, but because he filled it. Right? And I thought it was a great illustration. You know, when he finished that example, you know, the, the, uh, there's a hymn that popped in my head. Do you know what hymn? Like a woman at the well, I am seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, 
draw from my well that never will run dry. Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up and make me whole. Perfect example, right? The psalmist proclaims how wonderful the law is. So let's go to Psalm 119, uh, 97 through 105. Oh, how I love your law. Is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. You know, that was written before Jesus comes and starts to fulfill that cup. You know, the psalmist, his cup's only half full, and he's singing like this. He has no hope of actually keeping the law. It was impossible for him to do it. You know, Jesus comes to fulfill the law so that we are no longer are bound under its weight. He doesn't abolish it, though. But we're no, no longer bound and under, its, under the weight of it. Um, so we can enjoy the fullness of it now. You know, the fact that Jesus was the perfect son who kept the law perfectly. You know, he took the penalty of our lawlessness, and now his words are no longer a burden. But they're sweet. You know, sweeter than honey, and we find joy in keeping them long. We're never going to do it perfectly. Don't think that we're going to do it perfectly. That's not why we do it. Um, our efforts are never going to be enough. Uh, it, it was his work. His work, his, his fulfillment of the law fills our cup to overflowing. You know, Philippians 2, Philippians 2 comes to mind. You know, Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he did what? He emptied himself, poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Didn't come to abolish the law, came to fill it up, fill it to the top. Um, you know, he poured himself into that cup and now we trust in his work. We drink from the cup that what? Never runs dry. The law is all about him. Uh, you know what I think? It's also all about us. Uh, How is it about us? You know, it's about us because it shows us who we really are. In all of history, humankind has never been able to fulfill what we were meant to do. We've never lived up to who we were supposed to be. You know, throughout history, and probably more so today, we don't trust the word of the Lord. You know, we twist it into something that God never intended. Uh, and we were, you know, if we were to take a serve, actually, I did, I did some research. I went to the Gallup website and found an article written in July of 2022. And this is what they asked people. Do you believe the Bible is the actual word of God to be taken literally? Do you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Not all to be taken literally, 
Uh, and the last one, is the, Bi is the Bible fables, history, moral precepts just recorded by men? So 20% um, believed that the Bible was the literal word of God. That's way down from what it used to be. Like, way down. 29% um, say it's just fables, legends, history, just written by man, not inspired by God at all. 49% thinks it's the inspired word of God, but it's not all to be followed. We're in trouble. You know, I read another study. They asked, I think this was done like in the 80s, they did ask pastors what they thought about the Word of God. Now, this is evangelical pastors. I'm not, you know, I'm sure they're asking Protestants and Methodists and everybody, so this, it's a wide swath, but they were in that 49%. I think 53% said, I believe it's the Word of God, but it's not all to be followed. You know, some of it's just nice stories and pictures and allegory or whatever. And I'm like, and year after year, these numbers get worse. And we can see it. I mean, if you haven't seen it lately, we have pastors and of megachurches and other things that will stand in, in YouTube videos and say things that are completely contrary to the Word of God. And deceiving thousands. You know? <clears throat> and that's why I pray when I pray, God, let nothing come out of my mouth that mars your word, because it's supposed to be everything to us. The Bible's to be taken seriously. You know, it's, it's trustworthy. Um, well, they, like I said, that's the essay. Look at what it says in the book of Amos. You know, it brings some light on what we're seeing in our world today. So if you go to Amos uh, 8, 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and to seek the word of the Lord, but they won't find it. You know, do you see a hint of truth in Amos? You know, according to most research, Christianity is steadily on the decline, at least in the in our country and in the Western countries. You know, I think I read that every other religion is on the increase. The occult, New Age, you know, Muslim, Hindu, Hinduism, it's all kind of growing. The fastest growing group, though, are those who say they have no desire for religious affiliation at all. They call them the nuns. Um, why? You know, as a society, we're looking for truth. You know, we want truth. And then we just kind of pick and choose our truths. Take a little from this, take a little from here. Uh, and that yet we're more lost than we ever have been. More sinister. You see more evil. Um, you know, we wander from sea to sea. <laughs> North to east, to and fro, seeking meaning. Looking for what our hearts truly desire. You know, deep down there's this hole, and we want the true word, but in a sense, society is constantly listening to all these false voices that lead them away or tickle their ears, it says in the scripture, too. 
lead them to confusion and destruction. You know, we want someone to speak the truth to us. So we listen to this voice and that voice, being lied to and distracted from the one voice we should have always been listening to. You know, we were designed to listen to God's voice. And he's speaking to us, his word's alive. You know, it's living, it's active. We see that in the book of Hebrews, we just said, you know, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, let's go there, let's just read it. Hebrews 4, 9 through 12. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, joints marrow and discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Interesting that it says a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do we understand that rest? You know, have we entered into that rest? Do we strive for it? Do we hunger for it? You know, Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. You know, he's calling people to enter his rest. You know, we're called to be like him. You know, Christ is found throughout the Beatitudes. You know, what is he calling us to become in his Beatitudes? So it says, if you're poor in spirit, when you know that you haven't treated the law like it deserves to be treated, when you realize you don't deserve his rest, he says what? Come. You know, the humble in spirit are welcome. You know, the religious leaders who said, thank God I'm not like that sinner, you know, uh, would never enter that rest. But the humble, repentant sinner was welcome. You know, humility is at the heart of God's calling. And if, we're be, and if we're to be like Jesus, he calls us to a humility. He emptied himself, taping on the form of a servant. So he says, empty yourself, and I'll fill you with me. You know, when you mourn, you know, those who mourn will find rest. Jesus understands mourning. He wept over Jerusalem, you know. Oh, how I would gather you to myself, but you won't come. You know, he mourned over death, you know, because of the fall. You know, when his friend Lazarus died, he wept. Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows, anointed with grief, but he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows for us. You know, the meek will inherit the earth and enter my rest. Those who wait patiently, that's what meek means, wait patiently, long-suffering, the gentle, the resigned, You know what, resigned is one of the words used to define meekness, right? Uh, What's the definition of resigned? Patient, long-suffering, forbearing, forgiving. You know, Jesus was the perfect example of meekness. He was patient with us. He was long-suffering. He resigned himself to do what needed to be done on our behalf. You know, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. That through his poverty you would become rich. That's in 2 Corinthians and receive the inheritance that he has for us. You know, be merciful. The the merciful will enter his rest. Those who are merciful will show show the character of Christ, how he shows us mercy because he loves us. It's Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us. And while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
where does that satisfaction come from? It comes from Christ. He satisfies that hunger. We will never be satisfied in our works, but in his perfect work and in his righteousness, we find satisfaction. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Once again, the character of Christ, the son of God, was called what? The prince of peace. Isaiah 9, 6. Um, well, let's read Ephesians 2. Let's go there. Ephesians 2, 14 through 22. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. We'll come back to that. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, does that passage throw you off? Well, can for a minute, right? Because why? You know, I picked this verse because it came, you know, it came to mind that he's given us peace, but then as I'm reading it, you know, that through the cross we have his peace with God, but in this section it says that he abolishes the law of what? The law of commandments in there. Didn't we just say that he doesn't abolish it? But fulfill it? Uh, that none of it would pa pa pass away until it was all accomplished, not even the smallest jot or the smallest tittle. Well, we have to read it closely. We have to have good hermeneutics. That's a big fancy word. That means you have to read the scripture and take it all in its entirety. So, the law of commandments found in Ornces. Um He's talking about uh, the law and prophets. He's talking about... Um, the separation, oh wait, here we go. I, did I write that right? It talks about the law of prophets. I know what I'm going to say, but it's not written well. <laughs> All right, so there's, there's three different types of laws. There's the moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. I'll get to that later, but he's talking about civil and law here. Okay, civil laws that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about in this section. You know, the decrees given by the Pharisees, you know, that burdened the Jews, but separated from the Gentiles um, from worshiping the Lord, right? So think about this. When did Jesus, why did Jesus use the Samaritans in many of his parables? And why did he go to a Samaritan woman? You know, he's, you know he said, we must go through Samaria. You know, uh, the history between the Jews and Gentiles, the Samaritans, was rough. Um, they hated each other. There was this ongoing feud between them ever since they returned from Babylon captivity, from Babylonian captivity. Most of the Jews were not taken into cap captivity. You know, there was, a, there was like a remnant that was left behind that stayed in Samaria. 
And while they were there, they intermarried with the people. So they were considered um, no longer to be a pure Jewish race. You know, they're half-breeds is what they would be considered. When the Jews returned after 70 years uh, in captivity, the Samaritans wanted to help build the temple. All right? But those, those pure-blooded Jews <laughs> wouldn't let the half-breeds come near the temple to help. And they, they sent them away. So the Samaritans left and they built their own temple. Um, and the hate between the groups just continued to grow. You know, uh, so what did Christ come to do? You know, why did he use Samaritans in his parables? And why did he say we must go through Samaria? You know, the first person that um, he told that he was the promised Messiah was who? Woman at the well. A Samaritan, a half-breed. Right? So Jesus didn't abolish the law. But he did away with the separation Right? He, abolishes, he abolished the ordinances that brought enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. He says, you know what? I've, I'm going to abolish this because now salvation is for you all. There is no longer hostility. There is no longer separation. There's no longer Jew, nor Greek, nor male or female. There's no more black, white, Asian. It's us. He put away that hostility. Nailed it to the cross. And we're direct beneficiaries of what Christ accomplished. We're no longer aliens, but fellow citizens. The ultimate peacemaker he was. You know, Jesus fulfilled the law so that that hostility between us and God would be destroyed. And in the same manner, when we accept his work, we should be peacemakers. It shouldn't matter what your skin color is. We're fellow heirs in Christ because of his work and what he's done for us. And are we doing that now? No, we are not doing that. I think it's getting worse sometimes. We're so enlightened. <laughs> anyway, so that every tribe, every tongue, white, black, Asian, male, female, all of us should show what he showed us. Love, grace, mercy, Jesus tells us, you know, what we're called to and bring and to bring, that it, that it continues. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. But guess what? You can't keep it. <laughs> you can't fulfill it. I'm looking for people who realize they can't keep it. That's the humble. That's the meek. That's the poor. The realization that we will never, ever be able to live up to the standard that he set. You know, <clears throat> he's not a conquering war hero who wipes out your enemy, but a servant who conquered death, hell and the grave, who overcame sin, who paid the price for all mankind so that we may enter his rest. The one who fulfilled all the requirements of the law so we, that we can be reconciled to God. You know, and as we keep going in Matthew, we're going to, you know, we're going to be continually be reminded that we will never be enough. You know, our works, our striving has never been enough. Uh, he calls us to humility, meekness, hunger for righteousness. You know, he starts there, and we don't, we don't do that. You know, you know, we, I think we, 
I mean, I've read it both ways. It's like, it, you know, it's like this building up, and I think maybe they probably took it that way. It was this kind of building up into, oh, if you're poor and if you're and you're meek and you're all those things. And it, I think what what I'm realizing to me is like, I'm never those things. He's already starting with what I'm not. Right? I don't humble myself. I don't hunger after his word. I'm not, I'm not meek. I'm, yeah, all those things. I don't help the helpless and, and feed the poor. All those things that he says that we're called to do. So he starts there. And then he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. And I, this. And he says, you know, I mean, if you think you're keeping the law, guess what? And he keeps heaping it on. You know, he starts there and says that we're not going to do it. And right out, you know, he, he says, now, you think you understand the law? is what he's saying. Now he's, he's probably talking a little bit to the Pharisees and the priests. You think you got it. You know, I've just, he's, he's laying it on thick as far as the other stuff that we don't do, and now he's going to lay it on even thicker and say, you know, don't commit adultery. But that's not enough. He's like, one lossful thought, and you've broken the law. You know, divorce, you know, stay with your wife, because marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. Don't defile it. We don't do that, you know. Love your neighbor and hate, and hate your enemy is what he says, the, the word says, but I'm telling you right now, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You know, and he goes on like that. You know, and we're going to study those. But, you know, how many walked away thinking, I thought he was bringing us hope. <laughs> right? I can't do that. And he's making, and he's saying things that make it even heavier and more burdensome, you know. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> Nobody can possibly live and follow the law completely. I think if I think he would have just kept on going. If we said, well, yes, you know, well, he does in other parts of the Bible. He says, yes, I've kept all those laws. He'll say, go ahead, sell everything you have and come with me. And the guy's like, yeah, well, except for that. <laughs> what the heck? You know, seven times seven. And he would have just kept going. You know, how many times are you supposed to forgive those that, you know, are come against you? He'll just keep going. You know, 24 times in a day, 100 times in a day. And he, he just would have never ended. They're like, who can be saved? And he's like, guess what? You can't. With man, it's impossible. But with me, all things are possible. Because I fulfill all the requirements. You know, like I said, there's three types of law. Moral law. Christ fulfills the moral law, and he, you know, he lived that perfect life. The moral law, the commandments, you know, that transcend time and culture. You know, it's true for all people, all places, at all times, everywhere. It never goes away. Those stay. Right? So don't forget that. That's not what he came to abolish. Then he's got the civil law. That was what's being talked about in Ephesians 2. You know, God gave those rules to Israel so that they would keep themselves away from being led astray. It would kind of separate them and, and consecrate them. You know, it, but that's done away with now because we're not separated. He came to die for all mankind, to set us all free, to become his children. The wall of hostility between us is done away with. It's gone. You know, no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female, all that stuff. Then you have the ceremonial law. Then we have, you know, Christ fulfills all of the ceremonial law. Because, you know, we have no, we can't go into the temple and slaughter a lamb. If we did, it would be blasphemous. Because we've done what Christ has done for us. Once and for all. 
you know? <clears throat> There's no longer a separation between God and mankind because our great high priest has fulfilled the ceremonial law. We don't need to slaughter lambs to pay for our sins and that wash us clean. Christ, the Lamb of God, who is the final sacrifice, none other is needed because he was that perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The veil is torn, and we can now enter into his kingdom and into his rest, Right? That's the good news of the gospel. Leads us right to the gospel when we look at the laws. You know, so are you keeping with me on this? Are you tracking with me? All right. Humankind cannot keep the law. It cannot walk in righteousness. We fight humility. We hold on to bitterness. We often treat others harshly and without love. We don't love them like ourselves. We like we would want to be loved. We give into lust. We lie. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. We're prideful. We're arrogant. You know, Christ says what? I know it. You think I don't know? You know, from the beginning, I've seen all that you have done. But there's hope and there's joy for you. Let me tell you about me. Right? Let me tell you about myself. Open the word and let me speak the mysteries of all that can be found in me. How I have done all the work like, I, like, like he did on the road to Emmaus, right? Let the Spirit speak to you, beginning with Moses and the prophets. It all points to Jesus Christ. You know, when we read and we listen to his voice, does your heart burn within you? like it did with them, you know? The Spirit will remind of us, reminds us of our need for a Savior, for a great high priest, our need for cleansing through his sacrifice. Turn to him, you know, repent, ask for forgiveness, walk in the calling, and enter into his rest, because he's filled the cup. It's fulfilled. It's finished. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Right? Fill my cup. Fill it up. Make me whole. So let's pray. Lord God, <clears throat> we need you. We thank you that you came to fulfill all things that you completed the work that we were completely incapable of doing, that you set us free from the curse of sin and death, that we might be called sons and daughters of a living God, that you've put on us righteousness, and it came through your righteousness, not ours. And God, forgive us for when we blow it. We repent of our not following your law and not doing it, Lord. And we ask that you forgive us and continue to bring your spirit to us and have him gently remind us when we're not doing what we ought to do. And that we would re remember, too, that it's not about our works. We do them to proclaim your goodness, and we don't shirk them but we know we'll fall flat on our face and let us tell the world, we know we're broken.
But we have hope. We have joy. We have a Savior who was made a way when there was no way. And we just thank you for that. And we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.